Good afternoon. It is Wednesday, April 29, 2020. And on today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service, we have three items for you. First up is a talk by author Eva Sashniak, who is an award-winning and best-selling author of five novels. Her latest novel, the one that she's going to be speaking about today, is called The Chosen Maiden. I thought that I had everything I needed. I thought I was ready to go home, close the door to my study, and start writing my novel. I did go home. I did close the door to my study and quickly realized that the abundance of archival material can be a curse as much as a blessing. We then have nutritionist Cindy Bassel-Brown, who's going to be speaking about the challenges of eating healthy uh, while staying at home during the pandemic. It is very clear to me that in order to best modify a behavior, one needs to be aware of the actual behavior and own it. This is not always an easy thing, but the first step is to try and achieve awareness. Finally, we have another song from Corona Serenades. Well, that's the episode. Thanks for calling in. And here is Eva Stashniak. Hello, my name is Eva Stashniak, and I'm a fiction writer, the author of five novels. I'm talking to you from Toronto, where I live, and where, like most Canadians, I'm staying at home, hoping to do my small bit to limit the devastating reach of the pandemic, which affects us all. I would like to thank Cots and Luke Library for inviting me to speak to you over the phone in order to tell you a bit about my latest novel and how I came to write it. I hope this new unusual way of connecting will work well enough for us now and that one day we will meet at a regular author reading where you can ask me questions and where we can have more of a conversation. Montreal holds a very special place in my heart, as this is where I arrived from Poland in 1981, on the eve of Solidarity Crisis, and where I lived for six years, first as a graduate student of McGill English Department, and then as a journalist at Radio-Canada International. My first novel, Necessary Lies, draws its material and its inspiration from this experience, telling a story of a Polish immigrant to Montreal and her evolving understanding of what it means to leave her country, only to discover parts of herself she never expected to find. After Necessary Lies, I wrote several historical novels based on real-life women who inspired me and, as it will probably not surprise you, who left their own country, rewrote their lives and transformed themselves in the process. One of them was a petty Prussian princess, Sophie of Anhalt-Zerbst, who is much better known as Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, and who became the heroine of two of my novels, The Winter Palace and Empress of the Night. Another was Bronislava Nizinska, a phenomenal 20th century ballet dancer and choreographer who became the heroine of my last novel, 
the chosen maiden, and whom some of you might know as the younger sister of Václav Nijinsky, one of the most brilliant ballet dancers of all times. Here I have to confess that before I set off to write The Chosen Maiden, I didn't really know much about modern ballet. I did know about Václav Nijinsky. I thought he was a Russian dancer, although his name sounded very Polish to me. I knew that his spectacular international career ended tragically right after World War I. I knew that he wrote a famous diary illustrating his descent into schizophrenia and that he died in a mental institution in his fifties. I did not know that he had a sister, let alone such a fascinating sister. The Nizhinskys were a family of dancers, a Polish family, as I quickly learned. The parents, Thomas Nizhinsky and Eleonora Bereda, came to Russia from Poland and danced for years in Russian provincial theatres where they met and married. They had three children. Two of these children, Václav and Bronislava, or Bronia, as she was called, were particularly gifted. Having passed competitive entrance exams to the Imperial Ballet School in St. Petersburg, they received excellent education, paid for by the Russian Imperial Court, a long-time patron of Russian ballet. After graduation, they became artists of the Imperial Theatres, danced at the world-famous Marinsky Theatre, and finally joined what would soon become the most influential modern dance company of the early 20th century, the Ballet Russe. The Ballet Russe was a creation of another genius, Sergei Diaghilev, an impresario credited with spotting and shaping the greatest talents of modern dance. Thanks to him, from 1909, every Ballet Russe season became a sensation. Paris, London, Berlin, Rome have not seen such dancing, such costumes, such colors before. Diaghilev, the Tsar of Art, as he was sometimes called, ruled over his dance empire with an iron hand and got the best out of his artists. He was a fascinating and difficult man of whom many outrageous stories were told. In one of them, he tore up Picasso's drawings and told him to do better. That, by the way, happened in the 1920s in Paris when Picasso, who later married one of the Valerius dancers, was designing backdrops and costumes for some of the Balerus performances. This Balerus had become the Nijinsky's artistic home. This is where Václav created his most famous ballets and where he earned the title of God of the Dance. This is where Bronya Nijinska developed into a brilliant modern dancer and became one of the first women choreographers in history. All these achievements could have been enough to make Bronya Nizhinska a perfect candidate for a heroine of my novel. But what really made me fall in love with her was not her artistic accomplishments, but her early memoirs, a book in which she told the story of growing up alongside her genius brother. I learned a lot from early memoirs. 
I learned that Václav and Bronia were always aware of each other's talent and importance. Václav, older but almost two years, was Bronia's mentor, but she was his inspiration, his best critic, his dancing partner, and the best interpreter of his choreography. I learned about their childhood at the backstage of Russian provincial theaters where their parents danced. I learned of their ballet education and these important ballet russe years which shaped them as artists. I learned of Vaslav's troubled relationship with Sergei Diaghilev and Bronya's unrequited love for the Russian opera singer Fyodor Shalyapin. I learned of Bronya's marriage to a fellow dancer and her bitter disappointment and not being able to dance the chosen maiden in the Rite of Spring, that famous ballet Václav choreographed to the music of Igor Stravinsky, which, when it premiered in Paris in May of 1913, caused the now famous riots in the audience who had never seen anything like it before. The only drawback of early memoirs is that the book ends in August of 1913 with Václav and Bronya parting. She returns to St. Petersburg with her husband and mother to give birth to her daughter. He sails to Argentina for a tournée which will change his life. If I wanted to learn the rest of Bronya Nizhinska's story, I had to look elsewhere. I began from what was easy to find, the many excellent biographies of Václav Nizhinsky. His sister is always mentioned in them. Sometimes she even has a few pages to herself. She's also always mentioned in memoirs and biographies of all ballet Ruiz dancers, Tamara Karsavina, Anna Pavlova, Alicia Markova. There are passages about her in the biographies of Sergei Diaghilev and Igor Stravinsky, but by then, for me, this was not enough. Luckily, by then, I found out that Bronya Nizhinska's personal papers are available at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., as part of the Bronislava Nizhinska collection. This is where I found myself in 2014, among boxes of documents, scrapbooks filled with reviews, notes, letters, photographs from performances, vivid snapshots Bronya took of her family and friends, and the most tempting, her personal diaries. 200 boxes of papers, to be exact. For unlike Václav, whose career so tragically ended when he was only 28, Bronya's professional career lasted until her death in California at the age of 81. I spent a long time in the archives. I got to know Bronisława Nizinska well. I read her diaries, her letters, her notes. I found out what happened to her mother, her two husbands, her children. I read about her years in the Soviet Russia, where she became a modern choreographer in her own right and where she established her own school of dancing. I read of her dramatic escape from the Soviet Kiev in 1920 with her mother and two small children. I read of her rejoining the Ballerus, her visit to the mental asylum in Vienna, where Václav barely recognized her. I read of her professional achievements in Paris, London, Monte Carlo, 
and later in the United States, where she emigrated in October of 1939, just at the beginning of World War II. I thought that I had everything I needed. I thought I was ready to go home, close the door to my study and start writing my novel. I did go home. I did close the door to my study and quickly realized that the abundance of archival material can be a curse as much as a blessing. In my head, the archival voice of Bronislava Nezinska was so strong and so self-assured that I could hear no other. This was not a welcome realization. After all, I wasn't writing her biography. I was writing a novel. I needed to capture essential truths about the real woman whom I grew to admire and love, but not to imitate or quote her. A novel is not a photograph, it is a painting. I needed to step back, away from the archives, where the real-life artist rule. I had to be free to imagine my own Bronya, the heroine of my novel. I began by questioning the archival sources in which I had immersed myself for so long. I reminded myself that writing is always a form of camouflage. I pounced on the tiniest of cracks in Bronya's sentences, the hesitations, the omissions, the hints. Did Bronya ever resent her brother's fame? I asked myself. She wrote repeatedly that she did not, but was she entirely honest with herself? How did she cope with the losses that plagued her life? At what cost? How did she relate to Vaslav's flamboyant wife, Romola? Or Sergei Diaghilev, who called himself her spiritual father, only to say, Oh, Bronya, what a choreographer you would have been if only you were a man. What were the ups and downs of her relationship with her own mother, her two husbands, her children? Soon I had a whole list of such questions, my first steps in the act of writing. In search of answers, I read and reread the archival material, trying to catch the slightest of hints. I examined the photographs, especially the private ones, looking for visual clues. Signs of love, resentment, fear and joy. Dancers, I reminded myself, speak with their bodies. Dancers, I realize, whom I never met. This realization was a crucial step in the writing of The Chosen Maiden. I put the books aside and reached out to contemporary dancers and choreographers. I wanted to learn as much as I could about ballet as a living, breathing art. I was lucky in my quest. Veronica Tennant, legendary Canadian prima ballerina, agreed to speak with me. Piotr Stanchik, principal soloist of National Ballet of Canada, offered his help. This was the time when Toronto Ballet was rehearsing Nezinski, a ballet based on Václav's life, a ballet in which Bronya, my chosen maiden, for this is how I began to think of her by then, dances a very important part. So what did I do? I shadowed dancers at work. I went to ballet rehearsals. I smelled the sweat-infused air. 
touched the bar and watched. I talked to dancers. I immersed myself in their stories, real-life stories of artists who live a life similar to Brania's. I listened when they confessed to their own fears and dreams. I took notes and asked myriads of questions. How does a dancer think? What does a dancer see that I don't when we both watch people pass by our cafe table? I took note of the expressions they used, how specific they were when they talked of movements. Someone bends from the hips, for example, not just bends. I noted the attention they paid to the body, its mechanics, its limitations, and their insistence that, in the end, the art of dancing comes not from the body, but from the soul. This is why so many great dancers overcame their physical limitations. Anna Pavlova, her fragile ankles, Alicia Markova, her buckled knees, which needed strengthening. Armed with these insights, I travelled to some of the places I describe in the novel. Théâtre du Châtelet, where the ballerines dazzled Paris with its first season in 1909, a success repeated year after year. I visited Monte Carlo, the set of Bronya's greatest unrequited love for Russian operatic genius Fyodor Shalyapin. I visited Venice, where she heard Stravinsky, Václav and Diaghilev discuss the rite of spring, and Théâtre de Champs-Élysées in Paris, where the rite of spring premiered. I went to the Russian Orthodox Cathedral in Paris, where Russian emigres gathered in the 20s and 30s. I recreated Bronya's journey through Normandy in 1935, visited a sleepy town of Evreux, where she lived through unspeakable pain. I was at the Théâtre Vielki in Warsaw, where she choreographed her last pre-war ballets. I followed the trail of her dead, visiting their graves and reflecting on the staggering losses of her life. These places rooted my writing, allowed me to be there with her when I wrote. But only when I sat at my desk and began to write what would become The Chosen Maiden, I realized that I have one more asset, one more connection with the woman whose life has captivated me so much. The intimate structure of Eastern European family. As the men are erased from the Nijinsky family story by choice or by cruel fate, it is the women who take their place and carry on. Three generations of the Nijinsky women, Eleonora, Bronya, Irina, grandmother, mother, daughter. They are proud and strong, steadfast, nurturing and fiercely loyal. They stand by each other even in the hardest of circumstances. As the world around them is torn apart by wars and revolutionary upheavals, they know that they cannot afford to be weak. The existence of their family depends on them. This is a story which most Eastern European families, including my own, know by heart. And this is why, as I wrote The Chosen Maiden, I found myself transported to the arms of the Polish women of my childhood, 
my own grandmother and mother. They too were brave, nurturing, tough as nails, determined to wrench any chance they could from the little that they had. Born in what would one day be called the bloodlands of Europe, between them they lived through two world wars, a revolution, a Nazi occupation, and years of communist repression. Having experienced staggering losses, they still found a way to keep me safe and hopeful. If the door closes, climb through the window. You fell? Pick yourself up and keep going. We've come through worse times and we didn't give up. Resist when fighting is not possible. Remember, we are watching you. These voices still ring in my ears as they rang in Bronya's ears all her life. The Chosen Maiden is my tribute to them. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, be healthy, and may books always bring you pleasure. Hi, my name is Cindy Basselgram, and I'm here on behalf of the St. Luke Recreation Department. Some of you might know me from the St. Luke Aquatic Center as a swimmer, a master's coach, or a teacher of the deep water exercise classes. You might have even caught me on the TikTok app doing some dances with my girls. Today though, I'm here wearing a different professional hat. I am here as a registered dietitian nutritionist, ready to talk to you about nutrition topics relevant to today. I will be doing various broadcasts, lasting about 10 minutes, nothing too long, and although they are pre-taped, I will try and answer any questions you may have with respect to nutrition topics. You can send your questions either by email or by phone, and the questions will get passed on to me. The email address is a simple one, nutritioninfo2020 at gmail.com. Again, nutritioninfo, all in lowercase, the numbers 2020 at gmail.com. The number to call is 514-485-6806, extension 2019. The message might say Sarah, but no worries. It will be passed on to me. Okay, so enough with formalities. Most of us are restricted at present to staying at home and find ourselves turning in circles since the outside has become a no-go zone. It can be frustrating. Many people have taken to posting funny jokes to bring some humor into our lives. Today, what I wanted to address, I feel is quite pressing based on the many of the jokes going around, and that is the issue of being home and finding yourselves perhaps eating more than you regularly do, leading to perhaps weight gain. Now, some people, when stressed, will eat less and find themselves losing weight. In either case, what I'm about to discuss can be applied in both cases. It is very clear to me that in order to best modify a behavior, one needs to be aware of the actual behavior and own it. This is not an always an easy thing, but the first step is to try and achieve awareness. So in the case of overeating and undereating, here are some good steps to going in the right direction. Number one, log. I always suggest to log or journal what you eat as you eat the item. In other words, put a pad of paper in the kitchen beside the fridge or the pantry or on a table 
some were accessible, some were where you will see it and remember to document what you are reading. This will always bring light to exactly what it is you are grabbing for. Some of you might prefer to use your phone as a journal platform, that's okay. But remember to log and sometimes actually writing it down on a piece of paper brings more awareness. So you log the quantity, the item, the time of eating. You may even want to log how you're feeling. Are you bored? Are you restless? Are you stressed? But remember, log at the time you are eating the item. Don't wait for nightfall to record it all down. Our memories are not as sharp as we think they are. And sometimes the mere fact of writing it down will curb you from actually eating it. So remember to log. Number two, always take a plate and sit at a table when eating. This will stop you from standing at the pantry with your hand in a box or bag, wolfing down whatever. Also, having to go for a plate and perhaps a napkin and a fork and a knife will deter you from getting the non-essential snack you were going to take. That being said, watch for distractions. Do not eat while working at a computer, watching TV, reading a paper or a book, or anything else like doing a puzzle, playing a game, or knitting. Concentrate on the food you are eating and chew, chew, chew. Don't rush through a meal. So remember to sit down. Number three, choose smaller plates when eating. So we downsize. Over time, our dinner plates have increased in size. Try using a salad plate as your main plate. Studies have shown that bigger plates, spoons, and serving devices cause us to eat more. So remember to try and downsize. Number four, stickies. Place stickies or notes on the fridge and pantry, and even on the oven or the entrance of the kitchen with little messages. The messages can read, am I really hungry? Go for a walk in another room. Remember to log. Take a plate, please. Or it could even just say, smile and have a great day. So remember to write stickies around your kitchen. So the four steps, log, sit down, downsize, and write sticky messages. These four steps will make you more aware of what you are eating. So in the case of overeating, you will be aware. In the case of undereating, you might want to take an extra snack so that you are not losing your weight. So if there's anything that I can tell you that's really, really important and a takeaway is that awareness of what you're eating will help change your behavior. But more importantly, stay active, both mentally and physically. Try and get into a routine. It helps to keep the mind and body active daily. That being said, when it comes to eating, try and plan out a schedule. So the kitchen is not open 24 seven and you are constantly not grazing. So if you have any questions, remember to send it to the email nutritioninfo2020 at gmail.com or you can call 514-485 6806 extension 2019. 
This is Cindy Basil-Brown saying, wash your hands, don't touch your face, stay safe and healthy, and have a great day. Hi, this is Wakun Chen, editor of La Chene Musicale magazine and co-founder of the Corona Serenades. The coronavirus has forced us all into social isolation. La Chene Musicale is mobilizing an international movement to deliver the joy of music with Corona Serenades. We would like to thank the Kosing Luke Public Library for supporting this initiative and to all in Kosing Luke, be well and stay safe. You can find out more by visiting coronaserenades.com. Today's serenade is I Could Write a Book by British singer Rebecca Louise Dale. That is the show. Thank you for listening. Um, we're going to give you a telephone number to call. If you have a pen or pencil handy, um, please uh, please go get it with a piece of paper. Um, the telephone number that we're going to give you is for the office of David Birnbaum. That is the member of the National Assembly for the Darcy McGee writing. Um, Mr. Birnbaum's office is taking requests by telephone for the self-care guide that was produced by the government of Quebec, by the health ministry. Uh, this is a, a guide that gives you a lot of information, important information about uh, COVID-19 and how to protect yourself and so on. Uh, the guide was sent to all doors in Quebec, uh, but only in French. 
Um, so what Mr. Birnbaum's office is doing is they are taking requests for the English copy of the guide, um, and they will submit uh, the request to the health ministry on your behalf, and then you should hopefully be getting uh, in a little while a copy by mail of the self-care guide. Uh, so I will now give you the telephone number for Mr. Birnbaum's office. It is 514-488-7028. Again, that's 514-488-7028. When you call, just say that you would like a copy of the self-care guide mailed to you. Uh, you'll give uh, one of the people in the office your uh, mailing address, a name, and they will get that um, uh, sent to you uh, as soon as possible. So that's today's show. Thanks for listening. We will see you here tomorrow at 2 p.m.